Well, let me commend you on being so faithful uh, in your attendance and participation in our uh, study through the life of Abraham. This is week five, and we have allotted 12 weeks together to study through the life and the faith of Abraham. So we're about halfway there. And I want to thank you for hanging in there with me all of these weeks and looking forward to these coming weeks as well. Um, you know that we are thinking about the life of Abraham, and so we're learning a lot about him personally. But more than that, we're thinking about the faith of Abraham and his relationship with God and the family of Abraham and how his faith affected his family. And surely that's true of us. Our faith will affect our relationships. It'll affect our family, and we're, we're seeing this in the life of Abraham. Let me take just a couple of minutes, if you don't mind, and do a, a quick overview of what we've learned so far. Let me begin by simply uh, reminding you that God called Abraham into a very particular, very special relationship with himself. And he blessed Abraham, but the reason that he blessed Abraham was not simply that Abraham would be blessed. He blessed Abraham so that Abraham would be a blessing. Here's the, the way that we applied this to our lives. Do you remember? We said that we have been blessed to be a blessing. We have been blessed in order to be a blessing to other people. All of the good things that God pours into your life, all of the blessings that God gives you, everything that God teaches you and shows you, the ways in which he sustains you and holds you up, the ways in which he gives you light and grace to live, all of those things are not only for you, they are so that God can pour more blessing through you to others. And so we want to be a river and not a pond and, and be a blessing to others. We talked about the fact that this relationship that God called Abraham into was a covenant relationship. Very specifically, the Abrahamic covenant. Three promises in that Abrahamic covenant. One was, God said, I'm going to give you land. I'll give you a, a son, grandsons, and ultimately a great nation will come from you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a land where your descendants will live. And through your, your descendants in that land, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And we've learned that that is the Jewish people living in the land of Israel. And through the Jewish people in the land of Israel, Jesus came, died, and rose, and has become the Savior of the world. That is the blessing to all the earth through the Abrahamic covenant. The third thing that we learned about Abraham was that he believed God. He believed at, the, at an old age that God would give him and Sarah a son. And his faith was counted to him for righteousness. In fact, his faith caused him to become the father of the Jewish nation, right? Every Jewish person traces their lineage back to Abraham and Sarah. He's the father of the Jewish nation, and he is the father of faith. And so all of us who share in his faith are in fact the sons, the spiritual sons, if you will, of Father Abraham. Number four, we learned that Abraham was a blessing, first of all, to his family, then to the whole world, but first of all, to his family. And we want the blessing coming from our lives to begin with our family. We talked about how that he blessed Lot with his kindness and his generosity, even his rescue of Lot. Last week, we talked about uh, Abraham and Sarah's faith faltering, and their faith was strong, but it wasn't flawless. And their faith faltered after a while, and that uh, faltering faith uh, resulted in the greatest mistake that they ever made. That was his marriage to Hagar and the birth 
of Ishmael. Here was the principle. Do you remember? Don't ever forget it. Write it down if you didn't get it last week. Life's biggest blunders happen when we don't walk by faith. That's the absolute truth. When we fail to walk by faith, we make the biggest mistakes of our lives. All right, those are the things that we've learned in the last four weeks. Today, in chapter number 18, we are going to think about one of the most well-known events in the life of Abraham. Uh, Many of you will be familiar with this passage. It has to do with his intercession before God for the cities of Sodom. We're going to be reading beginning in verse number 16, chapter 18, verse 16, in just a moment. But let me introduce the chapter to you by taking you to verse number 1. Read with me verse number 1 or follow along as I read. Verse 1 says, And the Lord appeared unto Abraham in the plains of Mamre as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, behold, three men were standing before him. So the text begins with Abraham now face to face with three visitors who have arrived at his his tent. Now, we don't really know how they arrived there. In other words, we don't know if they walked up to him or if they just appeared. The text seems to indicate that they just appeared. Maybe they came walking across the the sand and he didn't see them until they were right in front of him. He didn't look up in time to see them until they were right in front of him. I don't know for sure. But in either case, Abraham is sitting in the tent, uh, the door of his tent, and these three visitors are there. And his response is really interesting, I think. Look at the second part of verse number two. It says, when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door, and he bowed himself toward the ground. Now, you should know that in the, in the Eastern culture, hospitality to strangers is very, very valued among the people. You show hospitality even to rank strangers. So maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe he just sees these strangers passing by and he wants to show them hospitality. He runs out, he bows to them, he offers to wash their feet, he offers to feed them a meal, he asks them to rest there for a while, and so they do. But I want you to notice the excitement. I mean, there's a, this doesn't appear to me to be the normal, let me show you hospitality. There is an excitement in Abraham which is um, hard to miss. Look at verse number six. It says that he ran, he hastened into the tent to Sarah. And he said, hurry, make three measures of meal needed and make cakes of bread. Bake three cakes of bread. Hurry. And then he runs out of the tent and he runs down to the herd and he grabs a young calf and he runs to the servant. He says, hurry, make three, uh, dress this calf and and, uh, cook it. And I want to serve these guests a meal. And so he runs back out and he's excitedly washing their feet and, and bringing them the meal and It causes you to wonder, does he think that these are normal people passing by? Or does Abraham think that maybe these are special guests? In fact, maybe these are divine guests. I I think he thinks these are divine guests. One of the reasons I think that is because verse number two says that he bowed himself to the ground. Now, Hospitality would have said, with respect, you bow, in the same way that we shake a hand. In the east, they would bow. But he doesn't just bow in respect. 
he bows to the ground. He's on his knees, his face on the ground before them. He doesn't just offer them a meal. He's running excitedly back and forth to get this meal prepared. And so you have to ask the question, who are these guys? Who are these three visitors that show up to the door of Abraham's tent? Well, if you read the text, the text will tell you exactly who they are. Look at verse 1. Verse number 1 says, And the Lord appeared to him in the plains of Mamre. Pop quiz on a Sunday morning. It's an open book quiz. Who appeared to Abraham in the plains of Mamre at the front door of his tent? It was the the Lord, right? The Lord appeared to him. And if you read down through the entirety of chapter number 18, he is called the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said. Here's the answer. Who are these visitors? One of them is the Lord. One of them is God in the flesh. One of these is the Lord in human form. So who are the other two? Well, the other two are angels or servants of the Lord. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Look at what the Bible says in chapter 18 and verse number 22. In verse 22, it says, The men, all three of them, turned their faces to go from him. They went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood in front of the one which was the Lord. He stood in front of the Lord, and the other two kept going to Sodom. Now look at chapter 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, And there came to Sodom that evening two angels. So the two angels leave Abraham and the Lord, make their way to Sodom and arrive in the evening. Who are these three men? One is the Lord and two of them are angels. Okay, These are the three visitors that show up and this is the reason that Abraham is so excited. By the way, we call this, this appearance of God in the flesh in the Old Testament, a theophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of, of God, or Christ, if you will, on the earth, a Christophany or a theophany. It means, that, it means that God shows up on the earth in physical form, most times as a person, but not always, when Moses saw the burning bush. That was a theophany. But it's when God shows up in, in ways that might be discerned with sight or, or uh, hearing or, or touch, God shows up in, in uh, physical form most often as a human. Now, by the way, I believe that Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent waiting for the Lord to show up. I don't think he's just, I don't think he's sitting there whittling and he looks up and, oh, well, maybe that's the Lord. No, no, no. He's sitting in his, the door of his tent waiting for the Lord to come, expecting that the Lord could show up at any moment. Let me tell you why I believe that. Look back to chapter number 17. In chapter 17, God is giving to Abraham his final promise. Sarah's going to have a son. You're going you're to have descendants. I'm going to keep my promise to you. Now remember, Sarah's 89 years old by the time you get to chapter 17. Abraham is 99 years old. God shows up in chapter 17. It's in chapter 17 that he changes their names from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. And he says, you're going to have many, many 
descendants. Abraham says to him in chapter 17, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Let Ishmael, my son I already have, 13 years old now, let him be the one through whom you'll send the blessing. And God says, stop it. It is not going to be Ishmael. Look at verse number 19 of chapter 17. Sarah is going to conceive. Now I want you to look at verse 19 where he says, God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant and with his seed or his descendants after him. Verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. This is the reason he was sitting in the door of his tent waiting on the Lord to come. Because in chapter 17, God had said, in the next year, I'm going to show up and Sarah is going to have a baby. And I just believe that every day of that next year, he got up, he got dressed, he shaved his face, well, whatever. He had his breakfast and he sat in the door of his tent and he just waited, maybe today the day is the Lord's going to show up. And when those three guys show up out of nowhere, he's like, this is him and make a cake and let me wash your feet and I'm going to just serve you, my Lord. And so he's looking for him to come. And I would suggest to you that we should have the same expectation, the same attitude. I hope you came to church today looking for God to show up. You you didn't just show up to sit in a seat, did you, and hear a sermon and sing some songs. I hope you showed up knowing that God promised that when we assemble, he'll be present with us. His spirit is here, and we're expecting him to show up this morning and do some things. And we ought to get up every morning looking for Jesus to come. Because Jesus has said he's coming again and he's given us the seasons and what the days will be like in the last days and we're surely living in them and you ought to be looking every single day expectantly maybe today is the day the Lord will come. He was looking for the Lord and well the Lord did come on this day in chapter number 18. And so Abraham receives these visitors. God says, verse number, back in chapter number 18, God says, in, uh, in verses 19, 20, 21, 22, that Sarah is going to conceive and have this baby. And look at chapter number 18 and verse 12, where Sarah laughs. I said verse 22, it's verse 12, actually. Where Sarah laughs. She hears these visitors talking to her husband out, out there in the, around the fire, having their meal. She's peeking through the, the, the flaps of the tent, the door. And she hears one of the visitors, the Lord, Although she just sees a man. And she hears him say, Sarah's going to conceive. The time of life, I'm going to come back. She's going to have a baby. And she, now she's heard this promise for 30 years. For 30 years, there's been no conception. And she hears Abraham talking to this man, and the man says, you're going to have a baby. And she just laughs at him. By the way, it's not uncommon. Women often laugh at what their husbands say, conversations they have. She's laughing. Am I going to have a, I mean, maybe when I was, 55, I might have believed it. I mean, maybe even when I was 75. Maybe 80. I'm 89 years old. Am I going to have a baby? You think I might have a baby now? And God says, why did Sarah laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. (laughs) He said, yeah, you laughed. And that brings you to chapter number 18 and verse number 16. But I love the fact that the Lord says to her, Verse 14, before we read the text, look at verse 14. Sarah, why did you laugh? 
Is anything too hard for God? Can I ask you a question this morning? If y'all listen to both campuses, would you shout amen? amen? What is it in your family that you think is too hard for God to fix? What is it in your life that you think is too hard for God? Hear the question of the Lord himself. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? There's not. Well, verse number 16. Let's pick up the text. Verse 16 says, And the men rose up from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I am doing, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great nation, a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, that they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, and I might encourage you to put in brackets next to verse number 20, to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done all the things or all together according to the cry of it which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous? With the wicked? Perhaps there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are there? That's far from you, Lord, to do that kind of thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. That the righteous should be as the wicked, that is far from you. Shall not the Lord or the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people within the city of Sodom, then I will spare the entire city for the sake of those 50. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken it upon myself, I'm taking a risk here, to speak unto the Lord. I'm but dust, you're the Lord, I'm just dust and ashes. Verse 28, But perhaps of the 50 there would lack five. Will you destroy the whole city just because you're lacking five righteous? And the Lord said, if I find 45, then I will not destroy it. And Abraham spake unto him yet again and said, well, perhaps you shall find 40 righteous people there. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 40. And he said unto him, verse 30, now, Lord, don't be mad. (laughs) Oh, let the Lord not be angry. I will speak. Perhaps there shall be 30 families. This is sort of like a a reverse auction for salvation, isn't it? (laughs) Do I hear 50? What about 45? I have 40. What if maybe there's 30? God said, if I find 30, then I won't destroy the place. Verse 31. Behold, now I've taken upon myself to speak to the Lord again. Perhaps there's 20 found there. 
If I find 20, I won't destroy it. Verse 32, finally, he said, Oh, Lord, let the Lord not be angry. Don't get mad. I, I'm going to speak just once more. Perhaps you will only find 10. If there are 10 righteous people there, will you spare the city? And he said, I will not destroy the city if there are 10 righteous there. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. It's an interesting turn of events in this visit for the day. Can you imagine what an unbelievably, uh, unbelievably awesome day this has been for Abraham? I mean, you think about it. He's sitting in the door of his tent expecting the Lord to come. The Lord comes. He has this amazing conversation. He gets to wash the feet of God in the flesh. He feeds him a meal. They're talking and God says, I'm going to come back and Sarah's going to have that baby's reaffirm this promise and, and Sarah's chuckled about it, but God's remained gracious and all right, it's going to happen. And the three stand up to leave. God, the, the Lord and the two angels stand up to leave and Abraham says, well, I'll see you on your way. I'll walk you out. And as he's walking them out, beginning in verse 17, verse 18, 17, 18, 19, there's this literary device, which is beautiful, where it, it, it almost pulls out of the text and it shows God, as it were, speaking to himself. In verse 17, he says, Am I, should I show Abraham what I'm getting ready to do? What Abraham is getting ready to learn, loved ones, is that this visit from the Lord was not just covenantal. I'm going to keep my covenant with you. It was also judgmental. And God is going to tell him about judgment that's coming. Verse 17, should I tell him what I'm doing. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and a mighty nation, all the nations are going to be blessed. I know him. He's going to teach his children right and that they ought to fear the Lord. I, I should tell him. Now again, this is a, a device in the literature to, to, to reveal to us the mind of God, not that God is undecided and talking to himself to try to decide what he's going to do. And so in verse number 18, it says, or verse 20 rather, it says that the Lord spake then Unto Abraham. And he says, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grievous, I'm going there and I'm going to deal with that. It's a solemn statement. I want you to write it down somewhere in your notes that we should recognize from this passage the certainty of God's judgment on sinners, that God will certainly judge sinners justly. God will certainly not perhaps, not as likely, it is certain that God will in fact judge sin and sinners and he will do it justly. The names of these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, have become synonymous with the severe wrath and judgment of God. When you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, you think of severe judgment. And in fact, it is, to be sure, the biblical measure of what the wrath of God looks like. In fact, Jeremiah mentions this city or these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, when he's talking about judgment in uh, Lamentations 4 and verse 6 when he says, your punishment is greater than Sodom. So Sodom's the measure. And he says, your punishment will be greater than Sodom. And he says, Sodom was overthrown in a moment. It became the measure 
of what the wrath of God looks like. Again, in Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 9, it is the measure of judgment where Zephaniah says, surely Moab shall be as Sodom. It's the measure. Even Jesus in the book of Matthew, when he was in Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida and he did great miracles and preached the kingdom and they rejected him, he raised up Sodom as the standard of judgment and he said, your judgment, Capernaum, will be greater than the judgment of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah has become the standard of what judgment looks like. It's synonymous with the idea of judgment. In fact, the colorful description of men who are fire and brimstone preachers, men who are described as he preaches with fire and brimstone, those are sermons or people or men who are said to preach the judgment, the severe judgment of God. And the fire and brimstone, of course, representative of the judgment that fell in fire and brimstone upon Sodom. And when you read this discussion between Abraham and the Lord about his judgment on Sodom, six times in the text that we read today, the word destroy is used. What's the judgment of God like? A citation? A slap on the wrist? Uh, that's not good? Is that what the judgment of God is like? No, six times he says destroy. If I can find 50, I won't destroy. If I find 30, I won't destroy. If I can find 10, I won't destroy. But he ultimately did destroy because there was not 10 righteous there. And the word destroy means to absolutely cause to perish. If you wonder what the ultimate judgment of God on sin is like, hear me. It simply means the destruction of the sinner. To wipe out or to cause to perish. In verse number 25, he speaks of slaying the sinner, the unrighteous. That God will surely slay the unrighteous. I want you to hear me this morning, loved ones. We should be sober about this reality. We should read this passage and understand that God speaks of certain judgment. Now, I want to note several things about his judgment uh, in this passage. We're going to go through them really quickly. And hear me, the brevity with which I'm going to deal with them does not represent the seriousness of each one of them. And all of them need to be dealt with and unpacked and fully understood. But for the sake of time, I've got to go through them quickly. Four things I want to point out to you about God's judgment that's seen in this passage. Number one, I want you to know it. God sees our sin. Hear this, pastor. You hide nothing from him. You may fool your, your wife. You may carry on sinfully in a way that your husband doesn't discover for years or ever. You might fool your children. You can fool your pastor. You, you might fool people in your life. But hear me, you are hiding nothing from God. He sees our sin. This is what verses 20 and 21 tell us when he says, I have seen the sin of Sodom. It rises up to me. The cry of Sodom is coming up to me. Secondly, God himself is our judge. Verse number 17, shall I tell to Abraham the thing that I am doing. God is our judge. 
Some people will say, my God is not a judgmental God. My God would never be harsh and judgmental. My God is too loving to ever send anyone to hell. Surely, ultimately, God will work it all out. Everyone will be saved. Everyone will end up in heaven. Let me tell you, when a person says God surely won't judge people, what they mean is surely God won't judge me. Because we all would agree there are some people we would, we would think, well, it surely ought to judge them, but not me. No, the fact is God is our judge. Let me read to you from the book of Jude. You don't need to turn, but I'll read it to you. From Jude verse number 7, the Bible says, even as, the, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner who gave themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, they are set forth as an example. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah have become synonymous with the fierce wrath of God. They are the measure of the wrath of God. Jude says they are the example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude says, if you wonder about the judgment of God, all you need to do is look at Sodom and Gomorrah and you will know, if you'll pay attention, that there is eternal fire for those who deny Christ. Verse number 14 goes on to say, the Lord is coming with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment. The Lord will execute judgment upon all convincing all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in ungodly ways and their hard speeches which they have ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I will simply say to you, God sees your sin and God will be your judge. Number three, the third thing that you should know from this passage in Genesis 18 is that God is perfectly, completely fair. He will not misjudge you He will not be unjust in his judgment. He is completely fair. Verse number 21, so interesting, back in Genesis 18, where he says, I will go down now. This cry of Sodom has come up to me, but I'm going to go down to Sodom and see whether or not they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is coming to me. And if not, I will know. Now, loved ones, do you think God really needed to go down and figure it out? Is he going down to evaluate with his checkboard? Now, let me see how bad they're really doing. No, no. He doesn't need to go down and figure it out. He doesn't need to go check it out, but he is fair. What he's saying is, I'm going to give you a fair hearing, and yet you will be found guilty. This is Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, where the Bible says that all men, great and small, the dead will stand before God. Everyone who doesn't know Christ will stand before God, and the books will be opened. What books? The books that we will be judged, or those lost folks there will be judged from which record the deeds of their life, what they have done, whether good or evil, and the book of life, to see if their name has been written in the book of life at the moment of salvation. Does God need to look at books to know what we've done? Does God need to, like a reservation attendant, search the book of life? I don't know if your name's there or not. No, he knows, but he's fair. God will not misjudge you, but you hear me. You reject Christ. God will judge your sin with perfect righteous judgment, and he will do it for eternity. Finally, as it relates to this judgment, I want you to see the warning of the righteous. The warning of the righteous. That is that the righteous ought to warn the unrighteous. 
In verses 17, 18, and 19, you've got this moment where the, the text presents God as speaking to himself. And he reasons, should I tell Abraham, should I show Abraham what I'm going to do? This judgment on Sodom. Because Abraham is going to be this great nation. And I know him, God says, he will teach his children that they are to live rightly before me. He needs to see the judgment that it might inform his teaching to his children. Listen to me very carefully, please. From where Abraham lived in the plains of Mamre, there at the Judean hills, he had a bird's eye view of the cities of the Jordan plain. He could look right down on them. He could see the city of Sodom. He could see the town of Gomorrah. He could see the cities of the valley. And he could see from the sky the fire and brimstone falling. He could see the destruction of those cities. And Abraham would have never, ever forgotten what he saw that day. He would have never forgotten the full-on display of the fierce wrath of God when God's patience runs out and his judgment falls. And he would have said to his children, honor the Lord. You do not want to be judged by him. Listen to me, church. There is a hesitancy in our day. There's a hesitancy from, from almost every pulpit across America today. A hesitancy to speak of judgment, of punishment, of eternal damnation and hellfire. You almost never hear such things from the pulpit. We love to talk about, and we ought to talk about, the goodness of God, to invite people to experience the grace of God, to know that it is the goodness of God that draws men to repentance and to compel people to come to Jesus so that their lives would be fully blessed. Hear me this morning. I want you to be saved. And I want you to be saved because your life will be more full. You'll experience his presence and joy. I want you to be saved because God's ways are best and your life will be fulfilled in him. But that's not the only reason I want you to be saved. I want you to be saved so you won't go to hell. And you hear this, pastor, if you reject Jesus, surely you will experience the judgment of God and end up in hell for eternity. Luke chapter 16 says the rich man died and in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Revelation chapter 20 says every person who was not found in the Lamb's book of life was put in time out. No. Everyone who was not found in the book of life got popped on the wrist with a ruler. Now do you know what the word of God says? Every person who was not found in the Lamb's book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. God sees our sin. He will judge our sin himself with perfect righteousness. And loved ones, I beg you to come to Christ, that you not endure his judgment. And for those of us who know Jesus, and we know these truths of God's word. And we have people we love who do not know Jesus. And as sure as you're sitting in church today, they are headed for judgment without Christ. And we say nothing as they go on their merry way 
toward the judgment of Almighty God. God help us as a church. Well, the fact of the matter is God's judgment is real and it's seen in his conversation with Abraham regarding the judgment that is to come in chapter 19 to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you'll notice that when Abraham gets this word, God says, we're going to Sodom, we're going to judge. And they begin to walk. And Abraham said, I'll walk with you. And here's what, you're going, you're going to judge. Immediately, Abraham must have thought of Lot. He knew Lot was in Sodom. He must have thought of Lot's wife and their girls, their two daughters. And he's walking, he's, I'm going to Sodom to judge. And Abraham goes, whoa, whoa. What? Verse 22, look at it. Abraham stood in front of the Lord. Somewhere in the margin of your Bible, next to verse 22, write these, this word, intercession. That's what this is, intercession. He intercedes. The two angels continue walking to Sodom. They arrive in chapter 19, verse 1. Abraham stands in front of the Lord and has this conversation with the Lord about his judgment. I want you to think with me this morning, Christian friend, saved person, I want you to think with me about the privilege and the responsibility of intercession. The great privilege that we have and the, and the deep responsibility that we've been given to intercede on behalf of those who are headed to judgment. Verse number 22 I mentioned says that Abraham stood before the Lord. The word intercession, which is what Abraham is doing, means to appeal to God on behalf of another. To appeal to God on behalf of another. It's a, it's a form of prayer. It's a way in which we pray, appealing to God on behalf of another. It is to intercede, is to, is to plead for those who will not or cannot plead for themselves. It is to stand before the Lord. And this is exactly what Abraham did. Now notice the basis of his intercession in verse number 25. He says in verse 25, It's far from you, Lord, to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. The righteous should be as the wicked. Uh, that's, it's far from you to do that. Verse 25 ends by saying, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God, you're, you always do what's right. God, I know you're not going to do what's wrong. If you're going to Sodom to slay to destroy Sodom, what about the righteous people in Sodom? They're going to be destroyed right along with the unrighteous. You wouldn't do that. And that begins this conversation back and forth, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. The basis upon which he intercedes is on the, the basis of God's righteousness, that he does not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. And by the way, loved ones, that is a doctrinal reality. He does not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. Now, remember, righteousness is a gift, not a result of our works. Can I be perfectly clear? When I say the righteous and the unrighteous, I'm talking about the saved and the unsaved. Righteousness has never been earned by a single Christian. It has been given to every Christian by the grace of Almighty God. It's Christ's righteousness in us. Unrighteous people are those who have never been saved. They've never been given that righteousness. Therefore, they do not have it. So when we talk about the righteous interceding, we know that God will never judge his people with the world. He will never judge the righteous 
with the unrighteous. Which, by the way, on a side note, is a wonderful foundation for believing in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. God will remove the righteous before the judgment of God falls on the world for their unrighteousness. Notice about his intercession quickly that it is in the first place bold. He's bold in his prayer to God. God, you wouldn't do this. I know you do right. If there's 50 people down there, will you spare it for 50? What about 45? What about 40, 30, 20, 10? He's, he's, he's being aggressive. He's being brave and courageous, bold in his prayer. That boldness is rooted in his deep relationship with God. He knew he could pray this way to God. His relationship with God was real and deep and living. This is the reason he could be so effective in prayer for others. Number two, his intercession is humble. There's no d- demands being made here. He's not saying to God, I, I, I forbid you to go and do this. This is kind of a thing in the church in these days. People say, well, you command God in the name of Jesus. Get out of here. Don't command God to do anything. But he's humble. Lord, I'm just, you're the Lord. I'm dust. God, don't get mad. I just, one more time, let me speak. He's humble. And the third thing that I noticed about his intercession, and this struck me this week, is that it's broad. It's broad. Let me tell you what I mean by that. His prayer is not spare. If y'all are listening to both campuses, shout amen. amen. Don't miss this. His prayer is not God save the righteous. His prayer is God spare the city because of the righteous. He's not just praying for Lot and his family to be saved. He's praying for the city. The city of whom the Bible says, now the men of Sodom were exceedingly evil and wicked before the Lord. And Abraham is praying that God would save the cities. Do you know that too often in in Christendom, in, in church world, in Christian lives, we don't care about the lost world very much. We want our four to be saved. God just working my family, working our few. But those sinners out there, I don't even like them. Let alone pray for them. And what Lot prayed was not save my few, forget the rest. What, God, what Lot prayed was let there be enough righteous that God would spare and give grace to the city. This is the way we ought to pray for our nation. Stop praying in a way that says, I just want the church to be blessed and you just pour it out on those evil people in this country, Lord. No, why don't you pray God would raise up so many righteous people in this nation that he would save America because he's saving so many people in America. Spare the cities. This is what he prays. So God says, well, if I can find 10, I won't destroy it. Chapter number 19 tells us, of course, that God does destroy it. And so there weren't even 10 righteous there. Now, finally, in closing, let me just say to you that that Abraham in this intercession is both a model for us, how we should pray for our loved ones who don't know the Lord, but he's also a beautiful type of Jesus himself. And so let me just close by pointing out to you, I hope you'll jot this down in your notes, we can see in Abraham's intercession, we can see the intercession of Jesus. How that Jesus has interceded for us. 
You remember that the word intercede means to to appeal to God on behalf of another. Verse 22, Abraham appealed to God on behalf of the the, uh, cities of Sodom. He stood before the Lord. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. It's exactly what Jesus has done. That the wrath of God, the judgment of God, was headed toward all mankind. And Jesus interceded. He stepped between the wrath of Almighty God and the, and the punishment of all of humanity. When he died on the cross, he's interceding for us, standing before God for us. In fact, because we know that Jesus is God in the flesh, now pick up your boots, we're going to wade in a little deep here. Hang with me for about two minutes. If y'all are with me and listening, shout amen. amen. Because we know Jesus is God in the flesh, imagine this, The judgment of God headed toward the world. Every person in the world, that it means you and you and you and you and all of you at East and me and the whole world, all of us deserving the judgment of God. Like Sodom, fire and brimstone should fall on our heads. We should be lost forever. Here comes the judgment of God. But Christ stepped in and took the judgment. But because Christ is God, what actually happened is that God interceded with himself on our behalf. Somebody shout amen. That's a little deeper than I can get into. God interceded with himself on our behalf so that Romans says he could be the justifier of sinners but still remain just. And if you ever say, how dare God send somebody to hell? How mean of God that he would let somebody go to hell. If you ever let those words cross your mouth, you hear this, Pastor. Number one, you don't understand the seriousness of your sin. And number two, you know nothing about the goodness and the rich grace of Almighty God who stepped from heaven to intercede to stop you from going to hell. And if you go to hell, you'll go over the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. Don't reject Christ Until you stand before God and you receive his judgment justly and rightly for your sin. Come to Jesus.